Welcome to the ABCs of Matrescence. We are two mamas, Emma and Mackenzie, who both have one-year-old boys. The ABCs of Matrescence was born from our desire to invite others into our intimate conversations about unfiltered motherhood and to provide abundant information and resources in order to support women during the pivotal life transition that is Matrescence. Our podcast touches on all aspects of Matrescence, from conception and pregnancy to parenting and beyond. Thanks for joining us as we chat all things real motherhood, from A to Z and the crazy in between. Welcome, guys. Today we have a really special guest. Dr. Nicola Rinaldi is joining us, and she's going to be sharing her expertise on hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is quite a mouthful. I don't think I was saying it so smoothly when I first uh, started understanding what it was all about, and people also refer to it as HA. And we, Emma and I, were both lucky enough to come across Dr. Rinaldi's book, No Period, Now What?, and also the support groups that she helped create online, and that was how we were able to meet, as we mentioned previously. But being able to bring her on to our podcast is is truly just an honor for both of us because of the ways that she's changed our life through the book that she's written and the support that she continues to bring us. So it'll be really exciting to have her today. But before we jump into our interview, we just wanted to share a couple highs and lows of our week, and we'll also be inviting Dr. Rinaldi to do the same. So Emma, do you want to get started and tell us a little bit about your week so far? I have been solo parenting all week. I would say my my high has been surviving, <laughs> period, survival. Actually, it's been a really good week. Um, I was a little nervous. I haven't had four whole days at home with our little guy um, and our two crazy dogs. And the beginning of the week was a little rocky. Owen just started to walk. And with that has been some sleep disturbances. But I would say our high has been, um, yeah, we survived. Dad's back. And did you have a low as well? Would that probably be the sleep stuff going on? You know, it was the sleep stuff until two hours ago when our power decided to go out on the entire block. Um, (gasps) So I'm sitting here in the dark trying to record this podcast using (laughs) my phone as the Wi-Fi while I have the portable sound noise going in my child's room, hoping he doesn't wake up or it doesn't die because it's not charged. So, yeah, that's going to be my low for the week because this was a little unexpected since it's beautiful and sunshiny outside. So we have no idea what's going on. So that's I know. going to be my low. <laughs> Dr. Rinaldi, when Emma texted me and let me know that was up, I looked at the Savannah weather and I was like, girl, it's completely like clear skies. I, I don't understand. Like, are you making this up? Like, what do you mean? Well, good. Well, that's uh, that's I mean, I suppose the low. Yeah, definitely stinks. Although here we are. So we made it through. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I would say my high for the week is my in-laws were in town. They spent five days with us and we had a really great time with them. I think that that's definitely one of the things I know that Emma and I want to discuss in in an upcoming episode, but that's one of the biggest challenges I think is trying to find that balance between, you know, your, your, obviously your nuclear family and then your in-law family and then your family of origin and trying to find how that all fits in when you start to have children of your own. And my in-laws have been tremendously supportive and loving from day one. But it's been, you know, obviously different having them here and then trying to balance everything with the baby and then my husband. And I just feel like like anything with time, it's just gotten smoother and smoother. And, you know, we just really got along so well. And as always, but I would just say this time was just especially special for all of us. So it was just a really touching five days. So that was great. But uh, but yeah, that would be my high. And then my low would just be Emerson wanting to start his day at about 530. <laughs> I'm like, buddy, this isn't this is not when mommy wakes up. Nope. 
not happening. So anyways, it's a work in progress. Things are improving, yeah. but, uh, but that would be my low. <laughs> so, and what about for you, Dr. Rinaldi? Uh, so my high was probably tonight. I was just at my 11-year-old's um, Cub Scout graduation, so he's now a Boy Scout, and I'm feeling a little verklempt about it. You know, he's my middle child. He's um, he's a great kid, and just kind of seeing him get more grown up is like it's really bittersweet. Um, you know, it's I know it's a long way away for you guys, but there's some really great moments and some not great not so great moments, and but it was a really really lovely ceremony tonight. So that was that was really great. Um, and I would say my low was just earlier today when uh, he and I were playing a bit of squash together and um, he got a little bit of an attitude. <laughs> so just dealing with some of the, um, you know, some of teaching them about a little bit about emotional regulation and, you know, it's you don't always have to win and you don't always have to do things perfectly. And um, yeah, so it's it's a bit of a different uh life phase than the, the the young boys that you have, but no less challenging. <laughs> From time to time, I, I say to Emerson, so, you know, you must be feeling this way right now. And what is that like? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's just going to cry. <laughs> he's one year old. It's okay. Yeah, I think yep. it's so great to talk with boys about feelings, though, because I think that's something that's really lacking in a lot of boys and men. And letting them know that it is okay for them to have feelings, I think, is a great start. So, Dr. Rinaldi, we're, like I said, we're just thrilled to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for your time. And we would love to just hear just a little bit more about you. Obviously, we, we're very familiar with your book, No Period, Now What?, which was published in 2016. And we know that your research and your work extends beyond hypothalamic amenorrhea as well. But we thought if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about who, who makes up your family, a bit of your professional life, and um, just help us get to know you a little bit more. Absolutely. So my professional life has been very interesting. It has not been a linear path. And certainly doing what I'm doing now is not something I ever imagined myself doing, um, which is really kind of cool. So I went to Johns Hopkins for undergrad and got a degree in chemistry. Um, and then I tried getting a job in the field and didn't really, didn't really find anything and ended up going back to a biotechnology company that I had worked for as a summer intern and they were happy to hire me. So I got into biotech. Um, and then a few years later, I went to um, MIT and did my PhD there. And I was waffling a lot between doing a PhD, an MD, an MD, PhD. And I was like, oh, I'd never want to see patients. Like, I'm just going to do the PhD. Now I kick myself in hindsight for that choice. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, so I did my graduate work at MIT in computational biology, which is kind of a combination of biology, statistics and programming. Um, I did my thesis on transcriptional regulation in yeast, which is um, kind of far removed from anything I'm doing now, but it was it was interesting work. Um, and then I went back to Biogen and um, did that for a few years. I, I wanted to go into computational biology because I knew I didn't want to work full time for my whole life. And I felt like that gave me some opportunities to work part time or work from home. So that's what I ended up doing once I had kids. Um, so my oldest son was born in 2006. Um, after my experience with hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we can talk about it in a little bit. So I now have three boys, um, so 13, 11, and 7. And um, yeah, we, we have a happy life. We all play ice hockey together and separately. And so we spend a lot of time in ice rinks, um, which is super fun. The hockey community is great. 
Um, and I was just, I was just saying, telling you, I play, I'm now playing squash with my 11 year old, which I also love. It's something I also did in graduate school and have picked back up again. And yeah, so that's a bit about me. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, uh, obviously, I'm sure there's a very specific clinical definition of hypothalamic amenorrhea, but if you were going to give just almost a layman's term or just a working definition of, of hypothalamic amenorrhea, just to somebody who was like, hey, what is that? How, how would you describe that? So it's basically when somebody is missing their period because of typically underfueling, overexercise, and or stress, some combination of those factors. Um, so it's almost always there's a component of underfueling, not eating enough, either in terms of absolute amount of food or cutting out certain food groups. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just missing your period. Uh, the, the clinical definition is for three months or more. Um, often people don't know because they're on birth control pills. So sometimes people, you know, somebody could potentially have been missing her period for years and years and just not known about it because she's been on the pill. Um, so they, yeah, that's the, that's the HA in a nutshell. Awesome. And when did you first start learning about hypothalamic amenorrhea? How, how did you come in contact with, with the term? Was it through personal experience or was it through research, studying? So it was personal experience. So I, um, at the end of my graduate career, I decided to lose a bit of weight. And I thought it was sort of the right thing to do because I was thinking about getting pregnant in the near future, and I did a fair bit of reading. As a scientist, you know, I like to research things before I do them. And so I read in a lot of places, oh, you know, lose weight, you'll have an easier time getting pregnant, lose weight, you'll have, you know, a, an easier pregnancy. And um, so I just thought it was the right thing to do. And so I cut my calories fairly significantly for the amount of exercise that I was doing. Um, I... I really had no idea. I lost a bunch of weight. I was like, oh, this is fabulous. You know, I can see the vein running down my bicep, which was something I thought was super cool. And um, and then I went off the pill a month later to try and get pregnant and my period was nowhere to be found. So it took me a while to figure out what was going on. You know, a few months I went to see my OBGYN. She said, oh, well, you know, come back and you know, wait a few more months. It'll probably just come back on its own. And you know, we did talk about my eating and exercise habits, and she told me to kind of ease off a little bit, um, but didn't really give me any clear guidance as to what I should be doing. So I eased off a little bit, which was still restricting my calories and still doing quite a bit of exercise. You know, I went from doing two to three things a day down to one and maybe taking a rest day or two, but still a lot of exercise. Um and so I was officially diagnosed with hypothalamic amenorrhea about eight months after um, after I first lost my period and, you know, when I went off the pill. Um, and then we ended up sort of going down the fertility treatment rabbit hole because I really wanted to be pregnant. And my doctors were telling me, oh, you're, you know, you're probably never going to get your period back or it's going to be really irregular because of how it was when you were younger. Um so I had four failed injectable cycles, and we were just waiting for insurance to do IVF. And then I happened to ovulate on my own, and I got pregnant. So it was kind wow. of a remarkable journey. Um, but I, I learned about HA then, and then I, I ended up being on bed rest when I was pregnant. 
And so a friend of mine sent me um, a link to a message board and I was totally hooked because, you know, I was on bed rest, so there wasn't much else I could do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that board is actually what ultimately led me into writing the book because I learned a ton through meeting other people with HA and learning about their experiences. And, you know, people would ask me questions and I'd go and research the answers and post them. And um, so it ended up, you know, I felt like there was really a, a lack of information out there. And I had the knowledge to fill it. So I did. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. And and just for if some of our listeners aren't exactly familiar with injectables, is that um, that's where, of course, you're having the injectable hormones for an entire cycle. Is that correct? Yes. So you inject yourself with follicle stimulating hormone and perhaps luteinizing hormone. Um, and those will cause a follicle to grow and an egg to mature. And then you take another injection um, to, quote unquote, trigger the ovulation. And then, you know, hopefully you have intercourse or do an intrauterine insemination IUI and get pregnant. And I did not get pregnant that way. So, um, What would you say would be the biggest piece of advice that you could give to someone who is struggling with HA and they are aware of it? So if they're in the, I guess, kind of in the weeds and they realize it's happening and, and you, you feel like you could give them just one piece of advice, what, what do you think that would be? It's not exactly advice, but I think it's really important for people to know that you can get your period back because I think there is a lot of misinformation about that. And like I said, my doctor said, oh, it might never happen. And that is information that's given to a lot of people. It's sort of like, oh, you know, you're probably not going to get it back or, oh, you could gain X pounds and probably not get it back or you're going to have trouble getting pregnant. So let's just do injections. And that has just not been my experience. So I, I did a survey that um, I included a lot of data from in my book. So it was over 300 women with HA. And um, the ultimate recovery rate is about 98%. And I lost touch with a couple of people. So I don't, you know, it could actually be higher than that. But that's a far cry from what some doctors are telling people, you know, oh, you have a 2% chance of getting your period back. It's way higher than that. And I think it's because um, you know, if you think about it from, from an evolutionary perspective, there have certainly been times in our species history where there's been famine or what have you, and people have probably lost their periods. And then those that were not able to get them back would not have reproduced. So therefore, that is not in our gene pool. Our gene pool is based on people who were able to recover their cycles after having gone through a famine. So, you know, I like to look at it from that angle. And it, it really makes a lot of sense that you know, things have shut down, but they're, you're not broken. You're not, you, you can get your period back. You can get pregnant. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that's challenging to fix, especially given all the information in our society and all the sort of rules about how, like, how you must be thin and you must exercise all the time. And, you know, all of that stuff plays into it. Um, so it's hard to recover and kind of push back against some of those norms and some of those ideals that, that are you know, not necessarily actually healthy for us. Um, but you can absolutely recover. It's very rare that a doctor will tell somebody that they should gain weight. I mean, somebody who is anorexic and clearly underweight, then yes, they will say that. But if somebody looks quote unquote normal, they'll be like, oh, no, no, your weight is fine. But our bodies are genetically a whole range of different sizes. And when you when you're not getting your period, that's kind of a sign that maybe you're in a in a body that's too small for your personal genetics. And so, 
um, you know, it's it's just you cannot look at somebody and tell if they're healthy or not. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and you can't put somebody on a scale and tell if they're healthy. You can't compare them to like some random weight range and tell if they're healthy. It's really a very individual thing. And, um, you know, so it's it's really challenging because there's so much. I think misinformation in the medical literature and medical sphere about sort of the idea that weight gain is always bad and it's always bad to be in a larger body. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who are putting themselves through basically hell trying to be in a body that's too small for them and where they're not supposed to be genetically. So, you know, I think um, sort of the whole body positive, body positivity movement, fat positivity movement, um, you know, there's definitely something to be said for just eating what your body needs and, you know, absolutely moving, but not always trying to control your body and not trying to be in a, at a place that's not right for you. Yeah, that's that's very powerful. That that resonates directly with me a lot that I experienced in this process of recovering from HA was just needing to be accepting of the fact that my body and my genetics never ever looked like I had an issue. My body weight was never too low mm-hmm. on the BMI scale, but there I was struggling yep. with that. Yep. So. And that's not unusual at all. Yeah. Well, that's definitely something that I think is important for, for us to keep in mind and something that we also hope to explore kind of within the context of motherhood. And that's obviously the once, you know, you go through and you do have the baby and you have the baby, then there's there's that cultural norm and that cultural pressure mm-hmm. to just really force, you know, you're trying to force your body back into this certain size again. You know, yep. like you have to, quote unquote, get something back. And that's just doesn't need to be a reality. Yeah. And there are plenty of women who do lose their periods through that, you know, sort of trying to, quote unquote, lose the baby weight. It's like you already actually lost the baby weight because the baby's now out of you. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's very um, true. I like you know, that. Trying to trying to underfuel, especially if you're nursing, because that takes a huge amount of calories to to make. You know, your you know your baby triples in size in the first year, and that's all coming from you if you're exclusively breastfeeding. So that's you know that's an enormous energy drain. And then if you're underfueling and deliberately letting yourself be hungry on top of that. Um, you know, a lot of women's bodies kind of shut down their periods in that in that um, arena. Now, it is it is normal not to have a period when you're nursing, but certainly if you are trying to, you know, if you're trying very hard to lose weight, you do make it a lot harder for your body to recover their periods afterwards. Well, that actually leads right into a question that we wanted to ask you, and that was, how can we avoid falling back into HA or falling back into the basically missing a period right now, Emma and I are still exclusively best breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as we look, as we look ahead, Owen is approaching 13 months or is 13 months. Emerson is headed in that direction. He's just turned a year and as still breastfeeding, we're looking ahead. What are some things, I guess, just to be mindful of so that the period does come back because in your, in your book and in the study and there really does show that for a lot of women, it takes weaning in order to get the period back. But she and I have both discussed, you know, hey, we want to be laying the groundwork now so that hopefully when we come out on the other side, our bodies are just going to jump right back to to creating a monthly cycle. Yep. So I, I think that's a very good point. So in women that have experienced HA at some point in the past, only about 20 percent recover periods while they're nursing and more as you, you know, as you sort of go further down the line. So I think there are very few that recover their periods before a year. And then after that, it's sort of 
a larger number, but still only 20%. That's not necessarily the same for a woman who's never lost her period. I think the, the percentage is quite a bit higher for those who recover their cycles while nursing. Um, so there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, but I think the key is, well, there, there are two keys. One is definitely not to let your weight get too low. So, you know, if you recovered cycles prior to getting pregnant, then sort of around the same body size is pretty, probably a pretty healthy place for you to be, um, you know, or higher, probably not too much lower because that means you've probably put yourself into an energy deficit in order to lose weight. And it's that energy deficit that really is what suppresses your hypothalamus, which is the organ in your brain that kind of drives your menstrual cycle. Um, and there's actually a really interesting study that was done. Um, I do reference this in the book. I don't remember the study author off the top of my head, but they looked at the return of menses in women in um, another country. I don't, I, I don't remember which one it was either. It's been a while since I've read the study, but they did find that there was often a small amount of weight gain associated with the return of the periods. And I think that's because if you're, when you're in a bit of an energy surplus, you gain a little bit of weight, and that's what kind of lets your body know, okay, it's safe for me to get pregnant again because there isn't as much of an energy drain. Um, so they found that that sort of little bit of weight gain was actually much more associated with uh, the return of periods than um, anything like the prolactin levels. Um, prolactin is a hormone that your body generates when you're breastfeeding, um, and that sort of suppresses your other reproductive hormones. So I thought that was I thought that was a really interesting study and interesting information. So it it does often seem to take being in an energy surplus for things to get started again. That's good to know and definitely something to think about you know, moving forward for women that go through it, whether or not they breastfeed, but giving their bodies that amount of time post postpartum to, to obviously fully heal and then be mindful of that. And I, I don't know if this ties into it, but I find sometimes even on a day when I have not had exercise at all, just the simple upkeep of now taking care of a whole nother human being breastfeeding huh. aside. I mean, I find myself exhausted by, yeah. by 9.30 PM. Yep. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and, and you do it times three. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, so one thing that I that I think, I, I'm not sure if, if Emma experienced this, I ex was told initially when I saw a reproductive endocrinologist that I had lean PCOS. Uh -huh. And so if you were to just basically just kind of explain the difference between the PCOS and HA. And obviously we're not focusing solely on that today, but just if somebody has ever heard the diagnosis before PCOS and they're thinking, but wait a second, a lot of these attributes of HA, quite frankly, sound more like me than PCOS. Uh -huh. What would be a good marker for a woman to know whether she needs to investigate more one route or the other? So just for people who don't know, PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, so that is sort of a condition where um, there's a, sort of a few associated um, symptoms that, but it's, it's a little bit hard to define because there are a lot of different expressions of that. So we, we call it PCOS um, for short. The, the main feature is often um, having a lot of small follicles on your ovaries. They're also called cysts, so that's where the polycystic part comes from. Um, the trouble is that when you have HA, you also often have a lot of small cysts in your ovaries, and it's called, you know, maybe not quite as many as somebody who has truly polycystic ovaries, so we tend to call them multicystic rather than polycystic. But 
you have to be pretty careful to count the actual number of follicles or look at the ovarian volume in order to say, okay, this is probably PCOS versus not. Um, a lot of times doctors will just kind of look at an ultrasound and be like, oh, there's a lot of follicles, it must be PCOS. Um, and that is not an appropriate way to make a diagnosis. So for a true diagnosis of PCOS, you need two out of three criteria. So polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, um, a missing period or having periods that are more than 35 days apart. Again, that's something that if you have HA, you have a missing period. So that's not something that distinguishes between the two, uh, between the two conditions. Um, and then the third criterion is having hyperandrogenism, which is an elevation in hormones that are typically thought of as quote unquote male hormones, although obviously um, people of all genders have them to some level or other. Um, so an elevated testosterone level, for example, androstenedione, DHEAS, and, and or um, physical symptoms of those higher androgens. So it can be a lot of hair growth in places that female, biological females don't typically have hair. Um, it can be insulin resistance, um, a lot of acne that is resistant to sort of typical topical treatments. Um, but so in somebody who sort of exhibits or who has a lifestyle like what we've kind of been describing, so underfueling, either, you know, cutting out foods, food groups, um, a fair bit of exercise, or maybe a high stress life, I would really hesitate to diagnose PCOS without having the blood work to support that. So without having the higher androgens. Um, and particularly another thing that you can look at is your uh, levels of FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, and LH, luteinizing hormone. Um, in someone with uh, HA, those tend to be low. So FSH can be normal. LH is often low, so around the 1 to 2 range, whereas in somebody with PCOS, it's often much higher than that, and so is estradiol. So it really is important to kind of look at the whole picture and not just pick on one little aspect and say, oh, you have PCOS or, oh, you have HA. Like, I think you really need to look at the blood work and the lifestyle and, you know, and the uh, and the ultrasound and really look at that whole picture before making a you know before making a call one way or the other and it's also challenging because both of them are actually listed as diagnoses of exclusion so it's kind of like you exclude other things and like what's left over well it must be PCOS or well it must be what it must be HA um, so it seems though that HA trumps PCOS so that if you're doing a lot of underfueling maybe if you've cut out carbs. Um, if you exercise a lot, then um, the suppression of your hypothalamus can sort of um, suppress PCOS symptoms as well. So it's it's kind of a challenge in somebody that does have PCOS to find a good balance. Um, but yeah, hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. I actually, when I first went again to see the reproductive endocrinologist, I remember they did the ultrasound of my ovaries and I had like 27 in one and 34 in the other. So mm -hmm. that's how they got there their PCOS um, potential lean, quote unquote, PCOS diagnosis. But in fact, I just fit that one single category of the three, none of the other categories I fit into. And ultimately it was HA. And so it's just, it's interesting to to hear more about that and, and for women to be aware. And I think that um, at least this was my experience in, in the medical process of going through it. And, and I'm not sure if you experienced this to some extent as well, Dr. Rinaldi, but that's that I found the need to be my own advocate. I felt like I needed to say, 
to ask the questions and to be curious. And I remember looking online, trying to understand, because the nurse just offhandedly said when I failed yet another cycle of letrozole, Mm-hmm. She offhandedly said, oh, well, it's your hypothalamic amenorrhea. That's why you need IVF. And I was like, wait a second. Can you tell me that word? I actually had her spell it for me. <laughs> then I Googled it. And through that process, I found you in your book. Yeah. But I, I find that there is often a lack of information about this. And I, I guess this kind of goes along with my next question is, is helping guide people and encourage them you know, to heal from HA and, and to move forward. But do you also find that sometimes these women need to also be kind of on the front lines of their own health, that they have to sometimes be really projecting their situation very clearly, whether it's to a physician or finding information online, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And I think part of it is just that it's actually not that common a diagnosis. So it's probably somewhere around 1% to 2% of um, biological females of reproductive age. Um, versus PCOS, for example, the, the literature suggests that it's somewhere between 10 to 15 percent that, that experience that. So I think doctors are a lot more likely to see cases of PCOS. And, you know, maybe they see one or two where it's like, huh, I'm not really sure what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. But unless they've really researched it, they're not they, they often just what they're told in medical school is, oh, just, you know, if somebody has no period, just put them on the pill, you know, it'll regulate their cycles, quote, unquote. Um, It doesn't actually regulate your cycles, it gives you an artificial bleed, and um, it doesn't give you all of the changes in hormones that support your body in the way that a natural cycle does. Um, But that is sort of the standard of care at the moment. And so a lot of doctors just do that, they give women birth control pills without necessarily digging any further into, well, why is this period missing and, you know, what's going on that, that's causing this? And I think that's really an important thing to get to is what is what are the underlying causes? Because there, I mean, there can be other things that cause missing periods as well. Like if your thyroid is off, that can cause a missing period. If you have um, what's called hyperprolactinemia, so a high prolactin level, as we as we mentioned before, that suppresses your reproductive hormones. So there are other things that can cause missing periods as well, and I think it's really important to investigate and get to the bottom of it rather than just taking the birth control pill to, and you know getting this artificial cycle without understanding what is driving that missing period. Absolutely. That was something I definitely had to advocate a lot for because that was a big push from my doctors was, we'll just get back on the pill, just get back on the pill. It'll make you get a bleed. And I, you know, after reading your book, I was far more educated and and actually came to them with the book and said, yeah, the research doesn't really show this makes sense. And, you know, I had to advocate for a different, you know, process of care. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Renal, you really have had such a profound impact on, I mean, Emma and I see it every day, still being in, involved in, in the groups. And now it's not just a recovering from hypothalamic amenorrhea group. It's a trying to conceive with hypothalamic amenorrhea, having a pregnancy while having recovered from it, or perhaps not fully recovered from it, but you're in a pregnancy, and then life after experiencing mm-hmm. HA as well. So there's a lot of different areas of it. And your you know, you're having this profound impact so, so often on so many women. Is this something that you, you saw coming in in your career? I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of passion behind this, but did you anticipate being able to have such a direct impact on so many women and, and truly on so many pregnancies? 
Yeah, not at all. It's not some, like I said earlier, it was, you know, I was sort of down, going down the path of working for a biotechnology company, which is great. I mean, you, you do get to have a big impact on people. Uh, when I worked at Biogen, we worked on um, a drug for multiple sclerosis and, you know, hearing from people that had MS, you know, how much better they felt when they were taking the drug was, you know, that was really amazing. But this is even, this is so much better because I get to have direct contact with people like you guys. And, you know, every day I get messages from people saying, oh my God, I got my period back. I never thought it would happen. I never thought it would be me. Or I got, you know, just got a positive pregnancy test. And, you know, just that really warms my heart. And I, I, it's, it's such a special thing to me to be able to do this work and to really help people. Um, and yeah, it's not something I ever saw coming. And, I would love to have gone to medical school so that I could prescribe medications for people and treat them more directly in that way. Um, so now I, you know, I do what I can. I just, um, I provide information. I encourage people to talk to their doctors. I give them guidance for what to ask for. And, uh, you know, I do get to make a big impact in that way. So it's pretty cool. But yeah. That's well, wonderful. I hope you know you're you were personally a big thorn in my doctor's side. Actually, I think it, drove him, it drove him utterly insane that I was so well educated and had so much information and also, you know, research to back it up. I wasn't just like Dr. Google said, you know, it was no, no, no. Like, look, yeah. I really want you. And he learned a lot. And I think that's really impactful yeah. is that not only I learned a lot, I genuinely think it changed the way he practiced and treated other women. And, and I hope so, because I think that's something so needed. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I had a very similar experience because my husband at the time he was working on an internal medicine residency and he's actually now completed that. And now he's doing emergency medicine. But when this all was going on, we would go into the meeting with the re reproductive endocrinologist and it would be me that would have, you know, the, the references and the questions and the things. And my husband, you know, obviously this this, you know, at, at the time, like I said, finishing up his first residency is sitting there like just kind of letting me handle it because he's like, you've done the research. You have the book. You have no period. Now what? I'm learning from all of this too. So that's so great. Yeah, it was, it was really neat. It was, it was definitely, I think that it's, it's something that, you know, bringing the awareness to it in, in all areas and, and the more that I think physicians can be aware of the variances that exist well within a, a male body as well, but especially in a mm -hmm. female body in this sense, I, I think that that's just hopefully going to be able to just improve the, the kind of care given and hopefully help women to have this knowledge that, hey, you can be a very healthy body weight, you can even be slightly overweight, and you can still be suffering from the energy deficit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think women in larger bodies are often encouraged to diet all the time and under fuel. And, um, you know, I think there's so much weight stigma in our society um, that there are a lot of people who, you know, people in larger bodies are often prescribed sort of diets that would be called an eating disorder in somebody in a smaller body, which I think is a real shame. Somebody who is really struggling to, and, and you define the term in your book of going all in, basically, you know, giving up the, doing as much as they can to reverse the, the deficit. So um, limiting exercise, increasing calories and really allowing the body to rest by decreasing stress as much as possible. What would you say to the person who's telling you, I feel like I cannot, I cannot make that big lifestyle change yet. All I want is to get my period back, but they're, they're looking you in the eye and they're saying, I, I feel like I can't just curious what that response would be. So I think it's really important that when people try to do this, they do it in a way that works for them because 
you can look at the all-in guidelines, which is 2,500 calories or more per day, um, cutting out high-intensity exercise. And if you're somebody who's been eating, say, 1,200 calories a day and exercising, please don't do that, anybody. It's really not enough food. But let's just say that's where you are. Um, it can be incredibly daunting to think about, okay, I'm not going to run again for six months and I'm going to double my food intake. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking it a little bit more slowly, you know. So increase your food intake a bit. Cut out a couple of days a week of running. See how you feel. You will probably notice that either you feel better already just doing those things or at the very least you don't feel worse. Um, and then it becomes a little easier to see, okay, well, now I can cut out, you know, two more days of running or, you know, I can add in another extra snack. So I think doing it in a way that works for that individual person is really important because as I say this all the time, there is no one size fits all recovery. The, what works for per, the person next to you is not necessarily what's going to work for you. And it's not necessarily what what's going to work for the person on your other side. So, um, you know, I think really working with maybe a dietitian, um, particularly somebody who's, you know, terms himself either a non-dietitian or is health at every size aligned. So they're not focusing on keeping you in as small a body as possible. Um, you know, I work with people individually. There, there are a lot of other people, a lot of other professionals that can help you guide you down this path to recovering your period and your life. Because I think that's a really um, so many women when they recover say will say to me, "I didn't just get my period back; I got my life back. I don't have to think about food every second of the day. I don't have to be in the gym every second of the day. Like I can actually live my life and enjoy it." And I think that's kind of the best part of it yeah that's that's powerful and that's something that I think think really is echoed very thoroughly too and in, in, in the in our groups you know when you you hear women sharing their stories or what happened just today a, a woman posted in one of our groups about being able to conceive for a second time and it was unexpected and she's just simply been taking care of herself and providing zero restrictions in terms mm -hmm. of her diet or exercise routine and and there you have it and I just thought to myself, wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, it, it sounds like magic, you know, and yeah. all she's really doing is just listening <laughs> yeah. to her body. So, um, another question that, um, imagining for a hypothetical situation here would be someone who's feeling that kind of why me, and I, I, you mentioned this a little bit more kind of about the genetic factor, but you know, you so often you'll be trying to conceive and then you see the person next to you who is, you know, feels like at the time, right? Mentally half your size works out twice as much as you Yeah, had an apple for lunch and she's, you know, ha happily getting pregnant with her third kid because her and her husband went out for margaritas. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so, um, I guess I just get, um, you know, I, I, I think about that perspective and I think about that. And so when it, we're putting together a few, a few of these situations, I thought, you know, that's something that resonates personally with me, but it's also something that you hear echoed a lot in yeah. it in all, in all areas, but especially in this area of, with conception and, and with dealing with hypothalamic amenorrhea. And so curious your response to that. Yeah. I mean, again, so there's no one size fits all recovery and there's, I mean, there's no one size fits all life. You know, it, it's, we do each have unique genetics and that absolutely plays a role in your susceptibility to losing your period. 
Um, but in a way, I often think that those of us that do lose our periods through underfueling and overexercise are kind of the lucky ones because, yes, we have to deal with it, but we get to get out of that prison. We get to learn that we don't actually have to watch every morsel that goes into our mouth and we do not have to exercise every damn day. You know, we can exercise a few times a week and eat whatever the hell we feel like it and, you know, just live our lives. So it's really hard when you're in the thick of it. And as you say, looking around and seeing all these other people who seemingly get pregnant at the drop of a hat. Um, but I think in the end, the life that you learn to live after recovery is actually really worth going through all of that. That's great. That's great. And what would be advice given to somebody who is really working in earnest to get the period back. Maybe time's not in the flavor. Just imagine this person's maybe in the later thirties, for example, or wants to have multiple children or, or what have you. And what would you say is that fine line between, okay, let's try a fertility treatment. And are we going to let, you know, just let the body do its thing? What, how would you um, advise someone if they're, if they're kind of tossing those around, they're saying, I'm doing my best, but Hey, I'm really, really desiring to get pregnant. But my period's not back or, Maybe my period is back. I've had a few cycles, but it's not happening quickly enough. If, if there's any advice you would give about someone who's in that kind of a, a junction. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using fertility treatments. I just think it is really important that before you do that, you do make sure that you are fueling your body properly, um, that you're not underweight for your own genetics, like we've talked about, that you have cut out the high intensity exercise. Um, certainly there are studies that even in women that do not have missing periods, high intensity exercise can make it take longer to get pregnant. Um, and I think under, I suspect quite strongly that underfueling has the same impact. I don't think there's been any research on that, but um, you know, I, I just, I've worked with a number of women who have failed multiple IVF cycles, for example, and then they, you know, eat more exercise, cut out their exercise for, you know, two to three months. And even if they don't get their periods back, they respond so much better to fertility treatment. So there are a number who have gotten pregnant either naturally or just using Clomid or Femara, which are very low intervention medications that help you um, ovulate. So, if you are consistent, you know, if you're, if you're really under fueling and you're exercising a lot, often those medications won't work. But once you reverse that lifestyle choice and you start eating more and cutting your extra, you're cutting out the high intensity exercise, then they do tend to work. And, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with choosing to use them, especially if you're looking to get pregnant or, you know, if you wanted to be pregnant a year ago or two years ago and just, you know, didn't find out this information until now. Um, so I think, Again, it's it's a very individual call, but making sure that you are eating enough to cover your body's daily needs and, you know, cutting out the high intensity exercise, I think can be extremely beneficial. Excellent. And the, the final question here in this would be imagining somebody who maybe has one child or doesn't have any children and, and perhaps doesn't desire the long term or just not the current moment but desires something to use for protection that isn't just family planning or condoms. Do you have any other non-hormonal birth control method suggestions for somebody who is looking to prevent pregnancy without using the traditional pill, shot, patch, et cetera? Um, 
So I actually have the Marina IUD myself, and I do ovulate on it every month. Um, so that is a potential option um, because the hormones in it are quite low level. So that's something that people, you know, if you if you, somebody's looking for a longer term birth control option, um, the uh, another option is the copper IUD. Um, so that's also longer term uh, birth control where you definitely ovulate every month. Um, there are other sort of barrier methods. There's a cervical cap, a diaphragm. Um, there's the sponge. I actually used that when I was in college and it went off the market for a while, but I think it's back on now. Um, so that's another option. Um, you know, there are definitely places that you can find out this information. There's a book called Sweetening the Pill by Holly Griggs Spall, and I believe that she may have a website that talks about other um, options for birth control. Also, the book The Fifth Vital Sign and um, Period Repair Manual by Laura Bryden. Um, I think all of them have a fairly comprehensive list of other birth control methods that people can can choose to use besides uh, besides the ones I've already mentioned. Um, so I haven't looked into them in great detail because we use condoms in between kids and then I got the IUD when we were done having children. Um, and that was, you know, that was what worked for me, but certainly, um, your OB should be able to give you a good, um, a good rundown of the different options as well. So. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll, we'll include these, um, these different resources as well in the show notes too, to be able to provide, um, to provide the the resources, but that's great. Thank you. And uh, to wrap us up this evening, Dr. Ronaldo, we would love to just hear a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you and a little bit of the work that you do with one-on-one consulting, speaking with, with various women and, and being able to discuss with them. And also if you could provide a little bit of information about your blog and about your Instagram as well. Sure. Absolutely. So, um, a good place to get to know me and my work a bit more is my website, which is www.noperiodnowwhat.com. So I have a blog section on there. Um, I have a link that you can click on to work with me, uh, a link to a number of podcasts that I've done um, in addition to this one. Um, and I, there's a lot of information that I have on there. I've, I've reanalyzed some of the data from my survey or analyzed it in different ways. So I have things like um, how long it takes to, for people to recover, um, whether that's associated with how long they've been missing their period for or not. Turns out it's not. Um, you know, a lot of people have trouble or not trouble, but, you know, you get your first period and it's like, when's the second one coming? And sometimes it can be a bit longer. So I have that kind of data on my blog. Um, so definitely tons of information in there. Um, I'm also at Neo Period Now What on Instagram. Um, my face, my support group is noperiod.info slash support. And from there, you can find all of the other groups that we've talked about in this podcast. Um, and working with me, uh, it's noperiod.info slash appointments, if anyone would like to do that. Awesome. Excellent. Well, we couldn't be more grateful for your time this evening. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Yes, thank you. And we'll, we'll look forward to sharing the rest of this information, like we said, linking it into the show notes as well. So fabulous. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. A huge thank you to Dr. Rinaldi for joining us today. I really, really highly recommend you checking out her website and her book. It's just invaluable and um, all of her great resources. And as always, we want to say thank you so much for joining us today. You can check us out on Instagram at ABCs of Matrescence. 
Gosh, I can't even say the word. I'm tongue-tied. Um, you can it's, find it's this on iTunes. type of polemic, amen, I know, I know. Between the two words, we picked a great topic and name for our podcast. So one day we'll get it together. But check us out on iTunes. Please leave us a uh, rating and review, and we will talk to you all soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.